Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Vaseem Akhtar. My guest for this episode of Bridging the Gaps is author, journalist, and entrepreneur Robert Boderi. His previous books include Engines of Tomorrow, The Invention That Changed the World. He's a former editor-in-chief of Technology Review and is the founder of the media company Exconomy. Today we are going to discuss his new book Where Futures Converge, Candle Square and the Making of a Global Innovation Hub. Uh, Bob, thank you very much for joining me. Welcome to Bridging the Gaps. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Bob, Candle Square is a very unique, very small, not uh, even a square mile space uh, next to MIT that is known as one of the world's greatest innovation hubs. It is known as one of the world's most dense innovation hubs. Set the scene, particularly for our international audience, where is Kendall Square and uh, uh, what is the environment there physically? Well, Kendall Square is uh, just across the bridge, across the Charles River from Boston. It's one of the first connection points between Boston and Cambridge, where uh, MIT is and Harvard is. Um, It is right next, just as you said, right next to MIT. And it has been called the, the most innovative square mile on the planet. And, and also, like you said, it's really a lot smaller than that. It's closer to a square half mile or a square kilometer. It is, uh, and part of what I look at is it went from just in the last less than 20 years, it went from a place where you had a, a scattering of modern high-rise uh, buildings, labs, uh, and so forth, uh, and mixed in with more garage-style spaces and low-flung older buildings and run-down parking lots to this incredibly dense, um, basically totally developed downtown. I say totally developed, but it's still under constant development, even as even as uh, it's already fully developed. It's amazing. Uh, so you have a number of skyscrapers in the sense of they might be 12 stories, 10 to 12 stories tall, uh, modern lab buildings, virtually every major pharmaceutical maker in the world is there. Uh, the big tech companies like Google, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, they all have labs there. And then uh, still you find a, a, a smaller presence for startups. When we talk about innovation these days in this information age and age of uh, high-tech activities. We usually talk about computing science. We usually talk about biotech. But that was not the case when Kendall Square started emerging. There were different type of um, technologies and innovations happening at that time. So tell us that uh, how did it all start and what were the initial technologies that, uh, that started becoming active in this area? Yeah, this is a story uh, that I learned so much when I started diving into this book. Cambridge itself founded in the early 1600s. Harvard was founded around 1630. Uh, And at that time, what we now call Kendall Square, all this land around where MIT is now is just marshland. And nothing was happening there. 
And it didn't happen there really until the end of the 1700s. But one of the things that really surprised me in the book was we all think of Kendall Square as being so defined and driven by MIT. But in fact, it was already a source of major industry and innovation well before MIT opened its doors there in 1916. So um, just to set the scene a little bit, um, I think one of the big things that makes Kendall Square so successful beyond having great universities right there is that it's located in this perfect crossroads location. It, and people were eyeing it as a place to do business basically as soon as, they, as Cambridge was founded. Uh, and they wanted to build a bridge between Boston and, and Cambridge right at that spot because that's the closest spot and it would save immense long, immensely long commutes uh, you know, by land around uh, from Harvard and so forth up to Boston. So anyway, um, it, it, that didn't happen until the end of the 1700s, 1793. The first bridge right there into Kendall Square was built. It's where we now call it the Longfellow Bridge. It was called the West Boston Bridge at the time. But right on the heels of that bridge coming to connect Boston and Cambridge, uh, the the city and the region built two major turnpikes that also, one from the north and one from the west, that also fed right into Kendall Square. So now you had these trade routes coming from the north, from the west, right into Boston, right through this place. And that naturally was a place for business to spot start up. And 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 the, one of the things that you know we I had a lot of fun talking to people about was right now, today, Kendall Square is some of the most expensive real estate in the whole United States. Some of the lab buildings are renting for over $130 a square foot. Uh, but then it was the cheapest land around. It was this marshland. Uh, and so where else would you start a factory, a business, uh, than this cheap land that was also close to workforce in Boston and you know close to Boston and, and, and Cambridge. So um, jumping forward a little bit after that 1793 bridge, um, the first what we would call high-tech entrepreneur to come into Kendall Square was a man named Charles Davenport. He was a very young man and he innovated in railroad car designs. Uh, I had never heard of him when I started this book, but it, he was an amazing guy who, you know, at the age of like 20 years old, was coming up with inventions on how to make railroad cars faster, quieter, reduce vibrations, all things like that. And his company that he co-founded with, with an investor uh, became the world's largest producer of railroad cars. And it was headquartered right in Kendall Square. Uh, and, and, and they really hit their peak between 1830 and 1850. Um, right down within one block of him uh, at that time was a, a young inventor named Elias Howe who invented the sewing machine. So you had these two early high-tech entrepreneurs uh, well before, you know, uh, almost a century before MIT got there. Um, as the region continued to, to grow, more and more companies came into this area. 
you had by the end of the 1800s and into the early 1900s, you had the world's largest soap making uh, production plant, Lever Brothers. You had the world's largest rubber clothing maker. Uh, you had uh, the world's largest the leading technology um, producer of the of the bitulithic pavement that made roadways stronger, that strengthened concrete. They were all headquartered right there in Kendall Square. Uh, there were 200 factories within 200 miles of uh, two square miles of each other. There were 200 factories within two square miles of each other, uh, and they employed thousands of people. So you had this booming, and yes, it was polluted. Uh, it was stinky from the rendering of the animals for the soap making. Uh, you also had major textbook manufacturers. You had the world's largest um, maker of inks and pens and typewriter ribbons. All these things were right in Kendall Square before MIT got there. And that was the high-tech industry of that time. A lot of them were exactly that, the high-tech industry of that time. Some, you know, we wouldn't, I think even then weren't considered necessarily high-tech, but a lot of them were. People think Candlescare became Innovation Hub because of MIT. And you have briefly mentioned that it was an innovation hub well before MIT got in there. And MIT got in there, I believe, in 1960s. So tell us that what was the impact of MIT getting in Kendall Square? Yeah, MIT came in 1916. And and uh, even that was an amazing story because uh, had, had just a few things gone a different way, MIT would never have been there at all. Uh, in the MIT was founded in Boston's Back Bay, right around the time the Civil War started in the 1860, around then. Uh, and uh, it had grown and gotten successful and known as a science and, and engineering school mostly, and they needed to expand. They couldn't fit where they were in, in Boston anymore. And they worked a deal to merge with Harvard and they were going to become, this is in the early 1900s, they were going to become the engineering school of Harvard. And the way they were going to do that is they were going to sell their buildings in Boston, and then that would enable them to basically pay their own uh, infrastructure costs to build across the, the river, right across the river from Bo uh, Harvard. And that was the plan. It was voted on by their 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 board, uh, and it and it was all going to go through until the, the Massachusetts State Supreme Court ruled that uh, because MIT had gotten started with a federal grant, they did not have the right to sell their buildings. Uh, so they could not actually pay for the deal with Harvard. And so it all fell through. And only then did MIT start looking around for cheap land to expand on uh, onto. And that led them to this, this uh, vacant marshland. Uh, that was uh, where MIT is now. They bought it in 1912, and they bought it from a, a syndicate of owners um, who were led by Charles Davenport, now retired, but he, he had this vision to build uh, uh, stately residences, uh, a big promenade, and all, and they, were, they had funded that, and they had gotten permission to develop it as that. Um, until the depression of the late 1800s hit them and forced them out of business. And then uh, only then and only because of that 
uh, was MIT able to then buy the land? I'm a bit confused here that uh, MIT got in there in 1916, yeah. 1-6 or in 1960? 1916, 1916. Was, was was very faint, really, until after World War II. And we, and we can talk about how that happened, but it took decades for MIT to really change the face of Kendall Square. Was the intention from day one in 1916 to create an innovation hub, or it was just the extension of the institution for various facilities? It was the, the original intention was just to expand and have a place for MIT to uh, accommodate its current growth, but also what they could envision as the future growth at the time. And in fact, they saw all these factories around that land, and they didn't want to be part of it. They they almost uh, didn't move there because they they worried about this is going to lower our reputation to have factories next next door to us. Uh, and so they actually put up what you would call kind of an invisible force field to kind of keep that that the older uh, existing businesses away from influencing MIT. Boy, is that different than today when uh, they're, they're trying to build as many bridges to the to this neighboring business community as possible. You just mentioned that initially the plan was to extend MIT and its various facilities. So when did this idea emerged that we should have a space where science, technology, innovation, and business should converge, and we create new products, and we create new business? Well, I think MIT was always geared towards the, you know, the creating new businesses and, and influencing uh, the business community. Uh, and they had many notable, uh, you know, alumni from the when the school was in Boston, who went on to form companies, but they didn't form them right around the campus. They didn't have this uh, this concept of a innovation hub that we see today. And I think so MIT was always very applied in its orientation, you know, in contrast to Harvard, which was thinking great thoughts and really believed in the purity of science. MIT was always, let's get this out into the world. They were really an engineering school first and foremost. But it wasn't about that world being right next to campus. It was just let's get them out there, and 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 it was and the way it evolved, it was you know this mashup. Some people would be very well, very intentional about what they wanted to do. Others would be more accidental, and it's this it's this constant flux of some things were done on purpose, some things happened totally by by chance, and then. But then over time, over decades, really, you had this uh, ecosystem around it like you have today. Um, the, a couple of things happened. You know, uh, after MIT was formed in, 
in Cambridge in 1916, it was only about a, uh, 15 years later that the depression hit. And all these factories that had been around and thriving either went out of business or were forced to move to cheaper locations, move to the Sun Belt. Uh, their technologies were old. They had they got supplanted by newer businesses, those kinds of things. And you had this kind of wasteland begin to appear. Then you had the double whammy of World War II hitting, um, hitting the area. And then um, and the, the combination of those things led the, 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 the factories that had been booming um, that were doing things like soap and all that, they were gone. And, and they were largely um, abandoned businesses or very much former, you know, shells of their former selves. Um, two things at MIT. One, there was a secret lab at MIT during World War II that did advanced radar systems. Uh, and that was immensely um, impactful on the future technology scene in the whole Boston area. They uh, brought some of the world, the country's leading scientists, physicists, and engineers there. And the, together with the war effort, they advanced the state of electronics about 25 years in the in the short four or five you know, wartime years, uh, and so this this had a big impact in spawning digital computing, um, the advance in, advances in electronics and circuitry and so forth, uh, made Boston a huge hub of digital computing uh, at, when that started in the '60s and '70s. So that was one impact. Uh, the other impact is that it also spawned a lot of ideas amongst the scientists and engineers. And now you had cheap, you had cheap factories and lab space where they could start their startup company right a couple blocks from MIT. So that a lot of companies in that post-war time got born in that area. And then as if they became successful, they would move out. So you still had this constant flux over the rundown area, but it began to seed the whole Boston area with a new high-tech spirit and climate. So, so, you know, not to belabor that point, but, you know, now we're 50 years after MIT uh, came and it's finally starting to, to turn out a, you know, large numbers of startup companies that are high-tech and so forth. Academics. Professors, researchers who are usually involved in pure and basic research, their focus is always on the research and they sometimes intentionally avoid business activities because there is a view in the academic community that business activities are not cool. You mentioned this in your book. How did academics get on board? Well, what you say is absolutely right for the, the, the kind of pure science and the, and the deeper science that um, it was not as true at MIT from the beginning. It was an engineering school and they always wanted to get their ideas out. And, and from the start, faculty members were allowed one day a week to consult with business and work for business. So already that was not the case at Harvard, for instance. Uh, and it and it was often the case with some of the MIT scientists as, as the school grew and got more into science and, and physics and biology and not just engineering, uh, that they wouldn't use their one day a week to, to work with industry. So, you know, how that point 
that tipping point came. It's really tough. But you had one, the culture of the school was always to get your ideas out. So that helped. Uh, then you you began to find in the in the Boston area this deep um, seeding with expertise of all the the different facets of innovation. So you you got people that were skilled in intellectual property and protecting it. Uh, you got you got two world class uh, business schools at Harvard and MIT that were also providing managerial talent, which these young companies really need as they grow. And then you had this investment climate also grow up. And all these things together, uh, I think, bridged a lot of gaps. They formed a lot of bonds that began to say, hey, it actually makes more sense that our science gets out and starts saving lives or protecting people or making their lives better in some way uh, than if we stay in our lab and just do our research. So that was a slow change. You saw lots of arguments about it on campuses all over the country, all over the world, really. Uh, I think they were in, really got big in the 80s and then the 90s. But by the, by the especially at MIT, by the 90s, uh, an entrepreneurial um, focus for faculty members was not at all uncommon. And by the 2000s, it's the other way around. It's like almost pervasive. Like if, if it helps you get tenure, if you also form a company, it used to actually retard you from getting tenure and make it harder. So it's been a complete reversal. What were initial innovation areas that started setting up their operations at Kendallscare? Yeah, I think um, you had some early, you know, I would call them kind of advanced uh, scouts or, you know, something like that, that would make a, a presence. So one of the first was a company that became world famous and still a huge multi-billion dollar company today, Raytheon. It was, it was formed by uh, an MIT professor, a Harvard professor, and a Tufts University professor. Uh, and they started writing Kindle Square to make home al uh, appliances, and they grew. Uh, but uh, to now, they're a major defense contractor. Um, they were an anomaly. They started in the 1930s. By the 1940s, they had certainly moved out of Cambridge, and now they're off in the suburbs. Um, so I, I would, but but you did see these electronics companies starting and digital computers computing that had deep ties to MIT. They might have an office or uh, their initial garage shop kind of thing in Kendall Square, but they all moved out. Uh, all the computing companies like Digital Equipment Corporation was the world's second largest computer maker. Its co-founder was from MIT. and and um, But they didn't stay right in Kendall Square. And and not and that didn't really happen until um, the '80s, the 1980s, where you really started seeing companies uh, start and grow and stay in Kendall Square. So I, I can talk some some more about what they were. One of the things that was fascinating to me is, uh, especially as we start to look at the modern era of Kendall Square, is in the in the 1980s, businesses started to be formed around two new technologies, and they started to be formed right in, in Candle Square. One was uh, 
artificial intelligence and massively powerful computing. And the other was this new field of biotech. They both traced their roots back several decades before that, but they began to be companies in this. And, and, and they were almost simultaneous. You had, uh, and yet it was the AI companies, the artificial intelligence companies that took the headlines and they defined Kindle Square at first. Um, and and uh, it was a great irony because 10 years later, they were mostly gone and now it's biotech that totally dominates the scene. So you never kind of, uh, the predictions are often wrong about what will grow and what will take off at what pace. Um, but I think you, you saw these, these two powerful waves come out. So in the, in the 80s, there were companies like uh, Thinking Machines uh, that was built the world's fastest computers. They were faster than Cray supercomputers, massively su uh, super parallel uh, supercomputers formed by an MIT young student, graduate student who had this brilliant idea, a guy named Danny Hillis still a major inventor in the in the world um there were he they became publicly traded there was another company like called symbolics that was an ai company there were about 15 artificial intelligence companies that sprouted up uh, most of them in kindle square so so much so that kindle square was called ai alley uh and, and there was a big billboard right at a major crossroads that said welcome to ai alley um, and everybody thought that was going to be the, the industry of the future. Uh, at the same time, uh, in, the, in the late 80s, uh, Lotus Software moved in there. Lotus was maker of the first spreadsheet for personal computers. The, maybe not the first, but the first super successful one. Uh, and it was the world's largest software company at that time, even bigger than Microsoft. And they moved their headquarters right to Kindle Square. Uh, and so everybody and, and, and the MIT Media Lab was formed in the mid-1980s. And it was also getting, you know, international headlines for its, you know, new digital arts and media and uh, advances. And, and so you had all this attention on the digital computing side of things. But at the same time, simmering below the surface was this new industry of biotech. Uh, and, and that's the one that that really took off. We will continue discussing the companies and the type of innovation that happens in Kendall Scare, but I now want to focus on the culture that is there. Yeah. And you say in the book that uh, if we compare the culture that exists in Kendall Scare with culture that is there in many other innovation hubs, there is a fundamental difference or something that stands out, and that is in Kendall Scare. The focus is on finding the solutions for problems. Am I correct in saying that? I would put it this way. And I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, too, in my, earlier in my career. And, and my company, Xconomy, expanded and had operations in, in Silicon Valley. And I spent a lot of time there. And, and these are the two great innovation hubs of the United States. You know, Silicon Valley, in terms of its sheer power and numbers much greater than Kendall Square. But in terms of the density and the power coming out of this one square half mile, it's that is unmatched even in Silicon Valley. 
But there are other things that are different too. And, and that culture is something that a number of people who had experience in both uh, places talked about a lot. And that was that the first thought of so many people are in Kindle Square is how do I solve big problems of the world and get the answers to make people's lives better? And making money is like third on their list. And uh, whereas it's not that that doesn't exist. Of course it exists in the Bay Area, but you have a lot less of the people that are just there to make money and a lot fewer of the types of people that want to just come up with a new app because it'll be popular, say, and, and, and make them a lot of money. They really, you really see this attention to form, to taking on big problems, Alzheimer's, uh, you know, rare diseases, energy problems, things like that. And, and, and again, they, you find people taking on those problems all over the world. But the culture around uh, Kendall Square, MIT, and Boston seems to be, uh, by, by multiple accounts and my own experience, much more focused on that kind of thing um, than the making money part. The other thing that I speak a lot about in the book, and it's something that Boston did in biotech but didn't do in its tech heyday of the 80s and 90s, and that's the culture of collaborating and helping others learn how to solve problem, mentoring, um, do, taking that extra step to um, foster the, the community and networks that helps everyone succeed, as opposed to putting up the silos and the walls around your company and your idea that keep people away. Um, and so that's something I go into in quite a bit of detail uh, in parts of the book. And this is something that I really want to touch upon now that uh, how is the culture in terms of openness, in terms of welcoming new researchers, allowing people to bring new ideas and then supporting people with new ideas? What kind of culture is there in Candle Square? Well, you really see in the, in the biotech, and I think it's there in, in every field of high tech now, but not to the degree of biotech. Uh, there was a there's a, a a professor at UC Berkeley who Anna Lee Saxinian who did a big study of the Boston tech um, scene versus Silicon Valley tech scene computing scene of the 80s and 90s, and found that while they started out equal, uh, Boston companies tended to put up silos, be more isolated campuses away from each other. They didn't go to bars and restaurants and intermingle much as opposed to Silicon Valley and that she found that this really um, uh, contributed to the downslide of Boston's computing industry uh, at the expense of Silicon Valley. You found the opposite happening in biotech in the, um, and, and there, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, one is that the field had a much kind of more recent and very palpable a set of uh, founders, you know, and and many of those founders are still alive and right there, you know, guys like Phil Sharp and Wally Gilbert, both Nobel laureates who founded Biogen, uh, they're still alive and active, and they 
they have trained many students that have gone out into the community. Uh, so that that's part of it. Part of it is the nature of biotechnology. This is not um, you come up with an idea and in six months or a year, you've got your product out on the market. This is uh, something that usually takes 10 years or a dozen years to get to market. And the problems are immense. And and, and nobody's going to steal your idea based on a conversation at lunch. They're not going to go, you know, oh, I'm going to do that for the next 10 years of my life and, and, and raise money around it. So it, it fosters a, a more um, conversational. You can talk about your problems more, I think, in, in biotech. There are lots, there are different kinds of problems, such as how do you do a fair drug trial? How do you get through the FDA pipeline and hurdles, um, the Food and Drug Administration hurdles? These are shared problems that people can talk about together and share their insights on how to deal with them in a much more collaborative way. Um, and another uh, key part about biotech, I think, is that while you might have hundreds of companies uh, all in the Boston area, um, they're not often that competitive, that many of them are going after very rare diseases, for example, um, and nobody else is going after that disease, or they're not using going after that disease with that technology, that approach. To biotech, and so um, it's it's while if there's always a, there is a sense of competition and 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 all that, but there's more of a sense of uh, cooperation, and and it just it just um, so you get this you get this culture where people are I would say they're always thinking how can I pay this forward how can I pay it forward how can I help the next young innovator coming along how can I it could be my manager wanting to go off to do something, you know, new and run a company. Well, I'll be on his board of directors when he goes over there, or she goes over there. Uh, and, and you have this cross fertilization, this, these dense networks where you see people, you know, professors at MIT, there, there might be, they're on each other's boards of directors. Their students are on each other's companies, those kind of things. They're just all connected. And, and so I think all those things go to this much more collaborative, mentor-driven uh, um, culture that, that is very clear in the Boston area. So what kind of companies and innovations uh, are happening there at uh, Kendall Square now? Well, what you see in Kindle Square now is uh, uh, a number of forces that are coming together in ways that are have a lot of good to them, but also raise some serious questions about the future. And one is that um, in the early 2000s, Novartis decided to move its world R&D headquarters to Cambridge. This was a, a tipping point for Kendall Square Biology a major pharmaceutical maker, the most successful drug maker of the day, said, hey, we're going to do things a lot differently. We're not going to be off on a campus anymore. We're going to come into the city next to MIT uh, and start doing biology that way. That kind of uh, tipped the scales for other major pharmaceutical makers. And now today you find virtually every single large drug maker uh, in Kendall Square or very close to Kendall Square. 
At the same time, you have large homegrown biotech companies like Biogen and Moderna are the two most famous right now that are writing Kindle Square and they become, you know, huge multi-billion dollar corporations. Um, all the major tech companies have moved and started R&D operations in Kindle Square. Google, as I mentioned before, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Facebook, they're all here, you know, and uh, Apple, they're all here. Uh, and what's happened is they've driven up prices tremendously. They've gobbled up a lot of talent. And now you have, um, so you have these two gigantic threads of computing and biology making bigger and bigger bets right in Kindle Square. Uh, and, and that's pointing to a convergence that's, that's happening. And that's the convergence between computing and healthcare and AI and healthcare. And, and those things are now they're out into every tech company has a health science operation. Every biotech company has a data science operation. They're all merging and they're pointing the way to new things in, in medicine that combine AI and, and medicine and healthcare. Um, so that's one kind of, I think, very visible and clear path of the future that's happening right now. Um, but What's happening at the same time, as I, I mentioned, it's a lot harder for a startup to find space in Kindle Square and be near um, a professor that might be on their board or that might have founded the company, say. Um, it, it's the only place now are in the co-working centers where you get a very small desk for a lot of money. Um, but at least you're there. You're close to the action. But it is putting the squeeze on startups, and that's a big part of the lifeblood of an innovation ecosystem is having that new source of talent and idea, people that are going to take a chance at being totally disruptive and not just continuing the status quo uh, and, or doing it better. So that's, that's one of the forces at work right now that I think you know, has some major question marks around it. Um, the other thing is – with the kind of maturity of life sciences and, and, and tech, um, you're starting to see more new uh, ideas and companies in the incubators uh, around new horizons. And, and these are the things that are very hard to predict. You're seeing companies like in quantum computing or in major new forms of energy, like um, or, or not necessarily a new form, but how do we do um, uh, uh, fusion power, say, things like that, that are, you have to believe that someday some bright students somewhere are going to come up with new approaches. And it could be in Kendall Square. You're seeing bigger, you're seeing more bets on those kinds of things now. And, and that's a, it's a wild card. I, I, but one thing that comes through loud and clear when you look at a place like Kendall Square over, uh, 400 years. And that's that nothing actually lasts that long. There's, there have been major companies that we thought were going to go on forever. Polaroid was headquartered in Kendall Square. It had changed the world. It revolutionized instant photography, photography with instant photography. Um, you thought it would be on forever, but it was gone, you know, after a few decades or a shell of itself. Lotus, same way. 
things that were so big. And you look at biotech today and you can almost bet that the biotech companies that are here now, they will they either won't be here in another couple decades or they will have transmogrified into something different, that drug making will be done in a whole different way. Instead of labs and, and compounds being mixed together, for instance, it could be all coded and done by computing. Uh, you can predict how, how compounds will act together, react together, rather than go through the process of testing them out in, in labs. Uh, and that could change you know, the whole nature of these businesses. So, so those are, those are some of the things that work that I think about a lot and we don't know the answers to so much of it. And what was the impact of uh, COVID-19 pandemic? Well, I think, you know, as in many places around every like major drug company say got looked into doing something, but what you saw in Kendall square, especially it was, something like 80 companies in the Boston area were tackling uh, aspects of COVID-19. And you saw huge, huge transformations. Um, Moderna, right, was founded in 2010 in Kendall Square. It's still in Kendall Square. Well, obviously, it became world famous by being the second uh, company to produce a vaccine. And there's a lot of evidence that its vaccine is the most effective uh, and more effective than the Pfizer vaccine. Um, that obviously changed it from a well-funded but largely not well-known company to, you know, renowned and internationally known. Um, you've, you found, so uh, you just found this scurry of activity you know, Pfizer, Johnson, Johnson, they all have operations in Kendall Square. And, and it's not clear to me how much of those were involved in the COVID. They were not not real forthcoming about, uh, you know, who's doing what in which lab and that, those kind of things. So, um, but you sound, you know, um, there's a major research institute called the Broad Institute that changed its whole way of uh, doing things and became one of the largest uh, and most successful COVID test facilities, um, retooled everything. So um, it, it was just, you know, it, it affected every corner. I, I think every street corner, you could probably say, was affected uh, by people changing gears, shifting gears, that kind of thing, to, to tackle aspects of either understanding the science of the disease or developing the vaccine. That is the impact uh, on the research work that has been happening yeah. in Kendall Square. But what about oh. the working? Uh, because there was lockdown and this whole new culture of working from home that is emerging. What is the impact of that? Yeah, that's a great question. And and so uh, part of the answer is it was the same impact as just about anywhere. You, The restaurants, the bars that they spent so many years building up uh, one of the long-standing complaints of Kindle Square was that it it didn't have that dimension of social life and and restaurants and bars. Well, gradually over the last fifteen years, that it finally got into a place where you had, you know, more than a dozen or fifteen or twenty choices where you could go for lunch and dinner and have drinks after work. Those were all, you know, 
all shut down just like they were everywhere. And, uh, and many of them did not survive. A few are just now coming back. Uh, and um, so that impact on that part was no different. Um, similarly, uh, the businesses were all working from home, except in the life sciences, critical businesses were allowed to come in. And you did see a number of people still coming into Kendall Square because they were working on COVID. They were considered critical workers. Um, but it wasn't anything like the numbers of, of the you know, pre-pandemic. Um, you, you had, um, and now you are seeing it come back. I mean, it's, it's not totally back. I think one of the, there's a lot of people trying to figure out how much will it come back and in what form. But I think um, in, in the, um, the, the density of Kendall Square, it's, it's clearly, I would say it's about 50% back, you know, from its depth and, and it's still got a ways to go and, and we just don't know. But the building's continuing. There are, I had a chart of all the major construction projects. Not a single one was was, was uh, lost more than a few months. They are plowing ahead because many of these plans um, are, you know, whether it's an individual company building something or it's the developer, they're building plans for the, a decade out, not for the next year or two. So I think, I think the, the large take is that more than most places, because Kindle Square is so rich in labs and, and things and, and heavy equipment, even in the tech business, that they have heavy computing equipment and you know you have to be in the office to take full advantage of it. I think you're going to see it come back more so or faster than in most places. One of the main features that we see in these innovation hubs is they enable networking. So you have huge networking opportunities. You physically go and meet people, have a cup of tea with them, have a discussion, and maybe you plan something. Now, a lot of this is moving online. There are online networking opportunities for researchers, and, and even there are opportunities to collaborate. Do you think that these physical networking activities will organically evolve into these virtual networking activities? Or do you think that there is still a value, a huge value to these physical networking activities and facilities? Yeah, I mean, I feel strongly there's huge value in, in, into the personal interactions and networking that you just cannot uh, replace it virtually and that people don't want to replace it virtually. They, we we enjoy being next to somebody right at the table with them uh, way more than, than being online and looking at a two-dimensional screen. Uh, I think I think you you see that hunger for that and that's part of the ethos of Kendall Square is that it's so closely compacted. It, it, it's, it's so easy to go visit somebody in the office for a meeting or to meet them for a coffee or a lunch or a drink or whatever because you're a few blocks away. I mean, you can get from you can get to the whole place from one end to the other in a 10 or 15 minute walk. And you, that means you can go have a meeting, have a very productive meeting and get back in your office, you know, in an hour, hour and a half, whatever, you, you know, depending on the length of the meeting. Whereas if you're in a place like Silicon Valley, you could be spending more than half a day stuck in traffic, you know, going off to this meeting. Uh, and that, 
and and the other element that is so valued by the people um, in Kendall Square, and I and I, you know, it's you can't possibly say it's led to this extra amount of innovation, but the serendipity, the serendipitous bumping into people that you are such close quarters. You could just be walking down the street and you see somebody, oh, that you forgot about, or that oh, you know, I, let's have a coffee, let's have a lunch. Or you bump into them at a at a restaurant. All these things happen in much closer quarters, with much greater frequency because of the density, and and um, it's um, it's universally valued, although nobody can quantify it. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> let us uh, shift our focus on the way you wrote this book. First of all, there is a lot in the book. You spoke with so many people, people who actually work uh, in Kendall Square, people who are part of the ecosystem there, so many interviews, so many discussions. And then you successfully converted those discussions into a narrative and you adopted this approach of storytelling. So this is a huge piece of uh, <laughs> research work, uh, Bob. Uh, tell us the process that you followed uh, to write this book. Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, I work real hard to do a, you know, a very carefully researched and well-researched book, both in terms of what's in the written and historical archives, but in talking to the people that are living and breathing and doing all this. Uh, and, um, I wanted to tell it in an accessible narrative, I would say, ger- journalistic way as opposed to a, a scholarly way, and 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 that meant storytelling and bringing out the the the, the little vignettes and and colorful stories that went behind forming a new company or somebody's approach to a problem. So I I mean I think that was greatly helped. By one, I've spent so much of my career writing Kindle Square. I came to MIT as a fellow in 1986. Um, then I w- was uh, first an editor and then the editor of Technology Review Magazine, which was based right in Kindle Square. I was a fellow again at MIT right after that. I wrote, some, uh, and then I founded my own media company based in Kindle Square. And so I have basically lived my professional life since 1986 with a few little forays outside right in Kendall square. And I, you know, my home was in Cambridge and in Kendall square for part of that time. Uh, my company was founded there. All that stuff gave me, I think an insight to the culture and some places where I could get a head start. Um, and then, uh, I knew, I knew, you know, a lot of the people, if not, most of the by far most of the people personally, and I was able to get to them. I did over a hundred interviews for the book, in, in addition to you know scouring several hundred articles and, and so forth. Um, the fact that it wasn't my first book, I, I had learned a lot about how to approach these things, and I had I had my I had a researcher going from day one to help me, and I knew where my kind of topic areas were, and so she was teeing up. The, the the people that I wanted to interview or the articles I needed to read and the books so that when I was ready for it, they were right there. I didn't have to just stop and then go hunt for them. And so that, 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 that 
help the narrative of my storytelling because I was able to continue it and not take long breaks. So all those things helped. Um, uh, and, you know, I, 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 you know I, I hope it made a difference in the approach. It did make a difference. Uh, it's, it's a fantastic read. And there is too much information there. <laughs> Uh, no matter which perspective you uh, intend to follow when you are reading this book, uh, there, there is a lot in, in there. If you are looking at it from a history perspective, if you are looking at it from the history of innovation perspective, I found it very interesting reading about the, the, the local geography and how, how, how different places interacted. But fascinating uh, work, uh, Bob. Well done. And it's it's a very good read. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, you know, I just kind of, I started diving into the project and I, you know, originally when you start a book, you have one idea and it's always different in the end from what you envisioned in the beginning. Uh, And I just couldn't resist the stories of these early innovators in the 1600s and and all that. And and that tracing that narrative arc um, of this place and giving you that perspective of history, I think it does help. To, to remember that things come and go. And, and, and one of the first things I did for this book, I, I'd gotten to know um, in, in my first fellowship at MIT, um, a biologist at Harvard, E.O. Wilson, a famous biologist who pioneered in the ants and, and, the, and, and he was a real study of, ec- of ecosystems in the wild and how they survive. And I, and I went, and had lunch with him. He was in his 90s. He's since passed away. Um, amazing guy, still writing books in his 90s. And he, he made the point that um, for a sustainable ecosystem, it does not equate to being a stable ecosystem. And, and that meant that change is always coming and, and things come and go and new species arise and all the same. And, and that was really important to remember. I think we need to remember that about the businesses that are making up Kendall Square today. They probably won't be here that long in the scope of things. Um, but there's something new is likely to come. Slightly different question, but uh, it relates to your area of work. Bob, you are a journalist. We live in this age of hyperconnectivity. We live in this age of information superhighway, but we should also acknowledge that we live in the age of misinformation and disinformation. Yeah. So how should we deal with these challenges when you are working on the cross-section of uh, science, technology, and business, uh, and, and you are writing stories, and, and you are bringing out truths and facts, but there is a lot of misinformation and disinformation. So how should we tackle these challenges well i mean you, you first for, foremost have to look at the quality of the source and and i mean that's something it's not new um in my career i've been worried about that since i first started writing my first article you know like there's always it's not just that you have this dual thing some people will tell you something that's just not true um but other people will tell you what's true for them but it's not the truth. It's a, a truth. And, and, and so you always are trying to get that balance of, well, there's five different viewpoints of how this company became great or this, this invention was made. Uh, and they're all true in a way, but 
none of them are the truth. And, and so you have to really filter that. And that's what I've tried to do. And, and, um, you know, you, that's why you talk to lots of different people and you read lots of different things and you do your best. It's not that you always get it right. Um, but you've greatly improved the chances that you've got it right. And, and, and so I think that's what we all have to do in, in everything because it, the, the the velocity of all that misinformation is incredible today, um, but it's it's still the same basic truth. So where did it come from? What are they, what are they trying to do with that information? Who's benefiting from it, and why? Those kind of things. <laughs> Bob, we are discussing your book, Where Futures Converge: Kendall Square and the Making of a Global Innovation Hub. We have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in this book. Obviously, there is a lot more in the book. However, is there anything else that you suggest we should discuss before uh, we close the, this discussion? Yeah, that's a good question. So we talked about the future. We talked about some of the the big take-home lessons. I, I, I guess I guess maybe we'll just – maybe a, a few things that um, – it might be important just to kind of stress the element of – a place like Kindle Square, a successful, I think the successful, many things that are successful, they don't get there because of one idea or one insight uh, or uh, trying something for a year or two. They get there um, through this crazy mashup of intentional things, chance occurrences, and the viewpoints and 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 input of lots of different people. And it takes it takes many years. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, so many people come through Kendall Square, economic development groups from all over the world come through. Uh, they come to MIT to learn about Kendall Square and the, and the ecosystem and how you can replicate things like that. And I think, you know, probably the first thing you have to remember is you got you to gotta be in for the long haul. You cannot do it with a you know five year commitment even it's it's a constant source of of renewal upheaval but dedication um, so anyway that maybe that's one thing to add into our conversation I'm not sure but you're I mean you you covered so much you you asked all the great questions so <laughs> thank you very much <laughs> it has been a fascinating conversation. Robert Baduri, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. Well, it's been great for me too. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>